This is me prepping for YouTube. <laughs> yes. When you, it's fun when you do that, uh, you see that the top of your head, it, it look, it like fl- your neck like flanges out, so you actually look insertable. I, I look like <laughs> I look like the bulb suction for the neonatal resuscitation kit. <laughs> With the little ridges. Yeah. <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder. I'm Mike Filippo. I'm Michael Stone. And today we are going to talk about an update to pre-hospital stroke care. And for those who haven't been listening to the show, Mike Stone is joining us today for the first time. He is our associate medical director. Mike DiFilippo is our medical director. And uh, he's joining us for the show. These guys are both working up in New York City uh, in residency positions. And we're happy to have both of them here. We're always happy to have Mike DiFilippo on. And welcome back to Mike Stone. Good to good to see you, buddy. Happy to have you on board. Thank um, you. For those that haven't uh, heard about you or haven't read the the bio on the website, tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll get into the show. Yeah, yeah. I grew up outside of L.A. Um, I was an EMT prior to starting medical school. Um, both did IFTs and uh, BLS uh, 911 response. Um, went to school out there and I'm out in New York City now for residency and kind of moving forward with my career um, in EMS. So excited to and he is significantly smarter than I am. He has been a huge addition to the team here. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> we got to start putting I, him I up meet, early, you know? <laughs> I, I meet the legal requirements for our professional stuff. Mike is the actual brains behind the operation. <laughs> so today's topic, we're going to talk about updates in pre-hospital stroke care. Um, specifically, we're going to talk about large vessel occlusions. We wanted to take some time to kind of get back on, on the clinical tip and give some updates as the year is coming to a close. There have been some significant updates in stroke care and with uh, LVO studies that have gone on over the past couple of years. So, Mike, we had talked about this um, a couple months ago when we pitched doing the show. So why Mike, Mike DiFilippo came to us, I should say. Yeah, I was um, going to say, which Mike yeah, did? I'm going to separate Mike D and Mike Stone is how we're going to do it. So, um, Mike D, when, when we talked about doing this uh, – why did why did this topic kind of come up to you? What what was what in the data did you see that was changing that you thought was important to get out to people? Well, I mean, truthfully, it's because I, I just wrote a manuscript reviewing all the different uh, pre-hospital stroke scales um, and really did a deep dive into the efficacy, sensitivity, specificity of all the major different pre-hospital stroke scales. And then outside of that, just anecdotally talking to some of the medics at our shop, um, really seems to be difficulty in diagnosing posterior CVA in the field or having like a good sensitivity for posterior circulation strokes. And for folks who are not familiar with the anatomy, which we'll get to a little bit during the episode today, really what I'm talking about is your vertebral artery or posterior, other posterior circulation uh, strokes, primarily affecting your cerebellum, brainstem, all those sorts of things, which can be clinically a little challenging to diagnose because of the broad array of things they can present with, as opposed to your typical middle cerebral artery, anterior cerebral artery strokes, which are your usual facial droop, unilateral weakness, speech difficulties, those sorts of things. So Mike Stone, give us a little bit of the, the pathophysiology of this ischemic stroke. We, we, I think we know, you know, coming out of EMT school, coming out of medic school, we have kind of the, the basic stuff that's been around since the 90s, right? The, the facial droop, unilateral arm drift, weakness in the lower extremity. And I, 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 so for me, I remember going into, you know, into undergrad and into medical school and talking about the, just the difference between Bell's palsy and stroke presentations, which I don't think is taught a lot at ENT medic school. So give us a little bit of the pathophysiology behind ischemic stroke, how it works, what's important for EMTs and medics to know in the field, aside from, you know, unilateral motor deficits. 
Yeah, so I think the core of the problem really comes down to like where blood flow is being cut off to the brain and in what way is it is that happening? So is that happening kind of like in a peripheral sense, right? Like the nerves in the face, right, with Bell's palsy are being affected and not activating as well? Or is this like a central process? Um, and that being, is this a brainstem problem? Or a kind of like more cortical outside of the brain um, problem? Uh, and those ones we catch, right, um, because they affect motor, they affect voice, kind of multi-system um, from kind of occlusion of the large arteries in the brain. So Mike D, what's, when you talk about like posterior strokes, what's one of the, the biggest symptoms I guess people could look for just to kind of set up that big red flag? Oh, there's no, <laughs> there's no, there's no good symptom. There's really no good symptom. You know, typically folks refer to the five D's, so to speak, for posterior circulation strokes. That's dizziness or like vertigo, dysarthria, dystaxia, diplopia, and dysphagia. Um, to break that down a little bit further, so vertigo, sort of like your, your room spinning sensation, dizziness, which in and of itself can be a whole separate episode, very difficult entity in general, just to sort of tease out and treat and manage. Um, dysarthria is your difficulty talking. Dystaxia is your difficulty ambulating or, you know, sort of dystaxia, not necessarily this, but sort of other coordination difficulties. Your diplopia is, you know, uh, gaze deficit issues or vision related issues. And then dysphagia obviously is, is a difficulty with uh, swallowing or talking, uh, depending which word you're using, uh, both sort of pronounced dysphagia. So in the absence of, I guess, a, a predominant symptom to look for, um, both of you talk a little bit about the common pre-hospital screening tools. And I guess the first thing I want to ask you is because we all know what, you know, the, the typical, you know, race fast kind of stuff. And we're going to talk about that, but what scales do you guys use in the emergency department when someone comes in for a stroke? I, I think both of us probably use the full NIH stroke scale, um, which I would actually also ad advocate uh, EMS to be using. Um, it really doesn't take that long to do like a good pre-hospital stroke scale, uh, pre-hospital NIH stroke scale. That being said, when you're talking, you know, you as an EMS provider, when you're showing up on scene, I think initially start out with something either like the Cincinnati pre-hospital stroke scale, the Los Angeles pre-hospital stroke scale, whatever, just to screen for if you have some sort of large vessel occlusion, right? Those will catch a majority of your anterior circulation, what people historically think of as strokes. When you do identify those folks, though, it's very important, I think, to have that data pre-hospital to see if there's any worsening change on the NIH stroke scale, improvement alternatively. Did you just witness CTIA, for example? So I, I would say I think I, I would recommend for pre-hospital providers, start with your usual, you know, Cincinnati stroke scale or, or, you know, LA. And then if you do recognize you're really concerned for some sort of occlusive etiology causing a stroke or, you know, brain bleed or whatever, then I would, I would really advocate for you to do the NIH stroke scale. There's apps that are out there for free that you can use it on. Um, project I used to work at, which I also used to work at, uh, there were some folks who just, you know, sort of uh, five finger discounted things from the hospital that were NIH stroke <laughs> scale packets to use on the ambulance. Um, not were EMS week gifts. Steal. Were EMS week gifts. <laughs> yeah, there they you were go. just a little bit early. That's all. <laughs> um, but that, that would be my, my recommendation. You know, I think the NIH stroke scale does have its faults, and so do these other pre-hospital stroke scales, and that they truly do not get, uh, recognize or, or really test for posterior circulation strokes. So if I'm concerned for a posterior circulation stroke, and Mike, please feel free to correct me or add your insight into this too, I, I use something called the, the standing algorithm, and we'll include it in the show notes 
But essentially what it's looking for is uh, start out your stroke screen the same way you start out every other stroke screen. And if you find something that even smells like a stroke, you hit stop uh, there. The other things I add and I look for when I'm concerned for a posterior circulation stroke, truthfully, are any sort of truncal ataxia. So you don't even need to get them up to stand, but are they sitting? And you sit them upright so like their back is not even leaning on the back of the chair. And do they start leaning over to one way or do they start to fall out of the chair? Or if they are able to ambulate when you're walking them, do they fall to a side? Or are they unable to do like a tandem gait? And what I mean by that is what the officers do, police officers, like toe-to-toe walk uh, patient. If they're really not able to do that well, and baseline, theoretically, they could do it well. That That's something that makes me concerned. Vision deficits are something that make me concerned. And then vertigo or this dizziness does raise my suspicion a little bit. But from an ER physician standpoint, you know, there's really lots of things that can contribute to cause folks to feel vertiginous or dizzy. So that is not really like a hard stop for me to say someone's, con- you know, concerning symptoms for a posterior stroke. Um, I really would love, and I think we can probably do just a dedicated episode on posterior stroke diagnosis, but I would say... For the purposes of this episode, just to keep it brief, it's really truncal or any ataxia, any sort of coordination deficits, um, whether or not that's walking tandem gait or other, and then visual field deficits on top of all that, plus or minus dizziness. I completely agree. Um, I think that kind of like when I think about what makes a good pre-hospital stroke scale um, and kind of like evaluating this is like what what allows us to identify the patients that need to go to either like a primary stroke center or mm-hmm. a stroke center that is like a like comprehensive stroke center that has both like TPA and a neurologist and has thrombectomy capabilities, right? Like which of these stroke patients are going to benefit from going to the comprehensive versus the not? Um, and the best data, I mean, that data like set is growing um, kind of year to year, um, kind of we're, we're seeing better outcomes having thrombectomy of LVOs in all the circulations now, posterior, anterior, and middle. Um, but the best data is definitely still with anterior and middle strokes. Um, so kind of like in my head, I think of um, mostly motor um, motor uh, symptoms along with like the, the Cincinnati pre-hospital stroke scale. It's kind of what goes in on in my head. So just, just kind of slow it down and back it up a little bit. Let's, let's go through what the mechanics of thrombectomy are, because I, I'm sure people have heard about it. Um, I certainly, I mean, I can go back to when I was working out of a neuro center and, you know, we were going and retrieving clots at 72 hours. I mean, there, and it's, the science has only grown since then, but take a couple minutes just to go over, I, I guess we take the patient into the stroke center, turn them over to the ER, and then we'll, we'll talk about what the treatment plan is just so kind of they, they have an idea of where to go, where they're going, what a thrombectomy is, how you decide whether to use like a clot busting agent, something like a tenecteplase um, or an altaplase, or how you go into a mechanical retrieval and if you're going to do that. Talk to us about that decision tree and then we'll kind of get back to more of the pre-hospital stuff. Yeah, so I, I think, uh, you know, the initial question for us really when a patient arrives with any concern for stroke to the ED is is this a bleed or not a bleed because that's really the big decision tree generator branch point at the beginning um because if they have a bleed then you can't give them things like tpa or stuff like that that's really you know going to worsen the bleed um 
So, you know, provided there's no, so they usually go, and I'm sure a lot of folks who are listening similar practice to most of the EDs you probably respond to, they go to CT really quick. Uh, usually, you know, where I used to work, they would go on the EMS stretcher direct to CT or within, you know, the first 10 minutes of ED presentation via EMS to CT. And if there's no evidence of a bleed, because that's really what we're looking for on the CT, you can't really see an acute ischemic stroke on a non-contrast head CT. Um, you can't, for the most part. Um, if there's no major bleed and the story is really good, meaning they have a very high NIH scale, they have really definitive findings. So, for example, one of the hard things that most folks will reach for TPA for is true uh, life-changing deficits. And what that is usually defined as is aphasia or any sort of dysarthria or primary motor deficits to the dominant hand or inability to ambulate. So those are really the folks who, in my experience, neurology will push really hard to try to see if they would be a candidate for or agreeable to receiving TPA. Now, when you're talking about, and TPA uh, is, is a, a powerful anti-clot medication or clot-busting medication. There's another medication on the market right now that's sort of uh, being uh, evaluated through sort of you know, trials uh, called Tenecteplase, which works very similar to TPA, but has a lot less of the risk of TPA. And so far, a lot of the preliminary data that's coming out shows it's pretty safe to give for those folks as well. So now the question then becomes, when we have folks who have a negative non-contrast head CT, so folks who do not have a bleed, and they have all the high-risk features of a large vessel occlusion, be it an anterior, middle, cerebral, or, or posterior stroke, then the question comes, are they a candidate for mechanical thrombectomy or just TPA or nothing? And that's really like the major decision points after there, and that's usually a conversation with their neurology colleagues. So if they're going to be a candidate for mechanical thrombectomy, that's usually a discussion about what their baseline MRS or modified Rankin score scale is. Um, so the modified Rankin score scale is just a objective way of saying how functional was this person prior to these deficits. And so, just to jump in real quick, the modified Rankin score is also used when we talk about cardiac arrest too. So this also mm -hmm. has a pretty decent crossover in EMS because the modified Rankin score, again, like you said, shows how well people are doing uh, you know, post-event. So you want to make sure that they have a good Rankin score. So if people see that in further data, I just want them to be aware of what the Rankin score is and where it's used. Mm -hmm. So for example, uh, all of us on this call right now are MRS zero for the most part, meaning we don't walk around with assist devices. We're fully functional at baseline. We don't need well, any assistance. Uh, I've said most of us on this call. I have an MRS of zero. Um, I can definitely think of some medics I worked with that have a baseline MRS of four plus. Um, <laughs> that being said, um, so if someone at a baseline is very functional, then they are usually a candidate for mechanical thrombectomy because mechanical thrombectomy in and of itself is an extremely invasive procedure that does carry certain risks with it. That being said, though, it's one of the best procedures we have in all of the House of Medicine. It has the lowest number needed to treat of any sort of intervention ever within the House of Medicine, uh, which is 2.5. And we'll get into all that nerdy data in a little bit. Um, but essentially, getting back to the branch decision points, folks who are candidates for mechanical thrombectomy or folks who are candidates for TPA, receive TPA, and then go for the additional thrombectomy, which is the way you can think about it is a roto-rooter. They either go through the radial artery in the wrist or the femoral artery in the leg, go all the way up to the brain. And depending on where the occlusion is, 
they suck it out and they sometimes will stent it or balloon it or whatever, depending on what they find when they get up there. There are some risks associated with it, such as dissection. So you're putting a, a, a wire into a vessel. And these are really, really small vessels when you're talking about getting into the cerebral vasculature, you know, on the order of millimeters of width, not centimeters. Um, so it's very easy to dissect them if you have someone who baseline is already not a good candidate for the procedure. So for example, someone with a, a super bad vascular uh, history. So their arteries at baseline are already pretty fickle. So you don't want to go in there with a hard wire and accidentally dissect their carotid or something while you're trying to help them out uh, for this occlusive stroke. Um, so that's sort of like the broad strokes of uh, where the decision trees will go. You know, there is a certain subset of stroke presentations that are within the window for TPA and within the window for mechanical thrombectomy, but because of their medical history or their pre-baseline elevated MRS or modified Rankin scale are not good candidates for TPA or good candidates for mechanical thrombectomy, meaning the harms significantly outweigh the risks, then those patients sort of fall into that third bucket of the, of the uh, treatment algorithm, which is DAPT or dual antiplatelet therapy. So they get the, the general thing is aspirin and then clopidogrel, uh, which are both antiplatelet medications to help prevent further stroke, but doesn't necessarily do anything for the current stroke. But I will say that with an asterisk, there's some studies that are underway right now that actually show DAPT is just as efficacious as TPA in some cases, which further adds to the TPA debate, uh, which is already like a raging debate. So that's, that's the something that we talk about on the show all the time. Generally yes. speaking, we have no idea what we're doing in medicine. <laughs> just... Yeah. This vague ideas overall, but, but so, we all act like we do. Oh yeah, yes. yeah, no, no. We we all have fancy letters after our name. We all know what we're talking about. <laughs> it's, it's like there, there was a Bill Hicks bit years ago where he's like, "No, this has to be real." Like I spent all this money and went to all this school. Oh, Bill Hicks, <laughs> rest in peace. What a legend. Yeah. So, uh, Stone, tell me. Uh, we we talked about some of the the different stroke scales. Is there one that has the best diagnostic accuracy? I, and I, I know that we talked about the NIH scale in in at length. For EMS, I think a lot of times the response is we don't have the time. So I, I'm not not to debate the use of the NIH scale. Um, I've been using the mini NIH in the field for years. Um, it it takes three minutes tops, but. So I think there's a lot of resistance to that. And in EMS, we're typically resistant to change in the first place. So what has what scale has the best results? And what do you think has the best applicability to EMS, generally speaking? Yeah, so I think it really depends on kind of like how you want to cut up the cake, right? Like, what what are you trying to get out it's of this? It's bold of you to think that either <laughs> Mike or I would cut up the cake. Yeah, I, I was <laughs> just, I was, just I was grab actually, a piece. I was yeah. quite offended, Mike. I don't grab a piece. I just eat the whole cake, Michael. Uh, yeah, yeah like, exactly. I was given God gave me ten natural forks here, and you just <laughs> you get right in there. <laughs> so I think the all of these scales, right? They try and get at the same core questions, right? At finding the same cortical signs, right, as we call them, meaning like the cortex outer part of the brain is not getting blood, it shows these signs, and this is associated with an LVO. So like gaze deviation, aphasia, neglect, like agnosia, or like inability to name things, right? All of these are like the most sensitive finders for an ACA or an MCA stroke. So how many questions you add to that? can make sense. It's going to take you longer to do the scale, but it's going to give you like more data and 
presumably like have higher accuracy depending on how you want to define accuracy, right? Um, if you look kind of like in the studies, there's accuracy for the sense of like specificity and sensitivity, right? Like how many people are you going to catch within these positive tests and how many people are going to not test positive but actually still have a stroke? Um, you can also think about it as the area under the curve, right? Thinking like if you can get all of these people that have kind of uh, a, like a, a score that's not just zero or one, negative or positive, but like if you catch people with, you know, five out of six, four out of six, two out of six on these tests or on these scales, um, you know, like where are you going to put your cutoff? And all that kind of puts gets down to effort. If you look at the data, though, like the race score, I think is probably technically your winner. Um, but then again, like that's a long score. Mm -hmm. I also just want to add, um, I'm pretty sure I have a great grandmother from the Golden Coast of Italy named Agnosia Di Filippo. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that too, because I, it, you know, Agnosia is not something that you know the phrasing we use in EMS sucks, but it's. Now I think there's people that, you know, with COVID, that's a symptom that, you know, you might see. So it's also, it's an important part of the differential, you know, because if you have someone who's in their seventies, who has a history of AFib and has a history of COVID and has agnosia, you know, that's, that's where I think it's kind of where EMS thrives, right? Because we try and, you know, thrive under pressure, but all right, Flip, I'm coming to you with one thing I have. I'm an EMS leader. I'm listening to this show because I want to have the, the best updates about uh, about stroke protocols. And I have to institute a stroke scale that I'm going to tell my EMS system to use. Give me one. <laughs> I, think, I think our our lack of answering is almost exactly the whole point of this conversation. Uh, it, it. It's very it's very difficult. I, I would I would I would honestly say the stroke scale I would choose is the one my medics and EMTs are most comfortable using. Boo! Uh, I, Boo! That's not a cop out answer. That's not a cop out answer. And why I say that is send this I man would, into politics. I, I would rather <laughs> folks who know really well. So truth answer, breast tax, I would say race, uh, Cincinnati pre-hospital stroke scale or LA stroke scale uh, and, or Melbourne. You know, one of the, any of those four, I think will get you anywhere if you want to be fancy doing NIH. Because um, the reality is like Stone was saying, you're going to catch a majority of your large vessel occlusions with those stroke scales. So, but I, what I would rather have is I would rather have medics or EMTs out there that know those stroke scales in and out, that know, okay, you know, these things uh, are going to be positive for LVO. So I should likely divert this patient to a thrombectomy capable institution. What I would say is I don't think we're asking the right question. Um, no offense, Ed. And the right question, in my opinion, is where is the deficit in my medics in picking up all the other stuff that would make a decision for transfer? Right. So that's fair. Yeah. I think the worst thing you can do as an EMS provider when you have a stroke patient is accidentally take them to the hospital that doesn't have the capability to do that. So, you know, primary stroke center, secondary stroke center, all that stuff is thrown around. So really what I think folks should take away from this conversation after listening to this is identify who your thrombectomy centers are within your catchment area and who your regular stroke centers are. Regular stroke centers, which are really most hospitals now, most community hospitals and outside of like rural areas or, or low access areas, have capability to give TPA or tenecteplase. And that's really going to be your stroke centers for routine strokes. 
the questions I would want my medics and EMTs to ask and the stuff I would say they need to learn would be the MRS. Because that's really, you know, all the other stuff we sort of ask when folks are TPA versus TPA and thrombectomy. Can we get a baseline MRS on these folks? Who's going to be able to get that information for us? Not, not the patient, because they're really probably not going to be able to talk or interact well. It's really going to lie, rely a lot on our medics. Talking to the family, getting some contacts, like, you know, seeing, seeing the house. Like, did you go to a house with someone who's like full on stroking out, but their house is like really well put together? Their MRS is probably zero, right? Like they're walking around, their house is well kept, their fridge is full, all these other sorts of things. Right. That's a lot of valuable data you can give us as physicians in the ED. And really what I would say for that is if you know that, that let's say, you know, example being you have a 55-year-old with no medical history reported and, you know, has a baseline MRS of zero from what you can tell. And you're 15 minutes from a regular stroke center that can only give TPA and 25 minutes from a thrombectomy capable facility. And the patient's last known well is an hour and a half ago, right? Big actually changing decision. I would say that's a patient who probably should go to the thrombectomy center because that patient would show up to that other hospital that can only give TPA. And at that other hospital, the neurologist is going to say, this patient needs to go to thrombectomy center to be thrombectomized. You know, the good thing about thrombectomy is it could be done within 24 hours, and that's really where the benefit's shown. So, you know, as us as physicians on that end have a little bit more wiggle room to transfer those patients. But all the other things that are associated with cost, delay time to definitive treatment, all those other things, that's where EMS can be most impactful. So I would say the better question is, where are my medics and EMTs deficient in routine stroke care, stroke care from what we do within the four walls of the ED? And how can I bring my medics up to that standard of care, my EMTs up to that standard of care? So I would say, you know, my better question would be use any stroke scale you want with the added questions of let's throw in some little investigation into finding out the MRS. And then I would also say, you know, let's ask a little bit more of definitive questions and a little bit more of a physical exam to catch the posterior stroke stuff, which really, if you're going to do anything, the three things you need to remember are gaze deviation, ataxia, neglect. Those will catch really like your big, big posterior circulation strokes. Those will catch like those as well. Like if they're not able to ambulate, if they're not able to, you know, coordinate commands or they have sort of any diplopia or true aphasia, those would be things too. I would, I would divert to a thrombectomy center as opposed to a routine stroke center. By the way, social drink to this episode every time Mike says thrombectomy. <laughs> and for folks who are listening, I, I, not to be that guy, but I'm going to be that guy for a second. Um, I did write a nice review article, which we will provide you for free in a PDF attached to this show notes that actually goes over the indications and benefits of thrombectomy, the indications of TPA or not TPA plus thrombectomy, and really where the field is headed of emergency neurology with emergent thrombectomy. So you guys can have a little bit more of a background. And I promise it's digestible and readable, not like a regular research article. Yeah. And I, I think one of the like key points about this for me is that like as we talk about this, like number needed to treat of, of like 2.5, right? I like I to give like some like context, like if you if we do this, right, a few times, like across a year, right, say, you have a few LVO patients in your system, you're helping, you're getting people to the right place, right? We they do get thrown back to me, like, if you do that a few times a year, like, you like are literally helping people, right, like at the most core level, right? These people are more able to feed themselves, right? They're going to go from bedridden to able to walk around their home. Sometimes they're even going to get back to their life at the same level they were before. And like, this is like, like true activities of daily living improvement and like literally saving lives. Right. Like we think about, I want, we should be thinking about this just like we think about cardiac arrest, like, 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 you know, the outcomes are just as important to our patients.
Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's one of the things culturally we're, we've kind of gotten bad at. Cause I remember a bunch of years ago, there was a move to call strokes brain attacks, um, yeah. you know, so that we could, we could liken them to heart attacks. Um, but I, I think one of the, one of the problems with that is with cardiac arrests, it's, it's very well publicized, right? There's a lot of people there. There's a lot of things going on, you know, at, at shift change, we always talk about the codes, right? Like Mike, you and I, Mike D, you and I have had shift change where it's like, oh, I had this crazy arrest, you know, and then there's a later thing. It's like, oh, I had this crazy RSI. I, I don't think we talk a lot about like the crazy strokes we had because typically our stroke patients, we're with them for 20 or 30 minutes. They get turned over to the hospital. And then, the, you know, the expected outcome, I think, is that they they get discharged, which is an incredible thing because, again, you don't have to look that far back in history to see people dying from strokes pretty regularly. Mm-hmm. You know, I like at, even like back to the fifties and sixties and you know the seventies, people were dying from strokes. So it, it's it's impressive progress that we made, but I, I I worry that we don't talk about the outcomes of strokes as it pertains to EMS too much. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that it makes us resistant to changing our stroke care because we don't ever actually get to see it. We don't have that, you know, the tangible benefit of it because no one's calling to say, Hey, thank you for treating my stroke. It's just, you know, they were, they were alive when they got to the hospital. They were alive when they left the hospital. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's true. You actually never see pictures of the medics, the police and the EMTs with the mayor, uh, for someone who got thrown back to me right afterwards, it's yep. always the cardiac arrest survivor and all that sort of stuff. But yep. but I, I do agree equally as important really to hammer home the number needed to treat. So, you know, what number needed to treat means in the literature and when you're talking about statistics is how many patients need to receive the intervention before there's a benefit. So for, for thrombectomy, it's 2.5. So out of, you know, 100 patients, you're talking about like almost 50 people or I'm not doing my math right. A decent chunk of people <laughs> who would have quite a significant benefit. So, for example, right, aspirin is shoved down our throats to treat for ACS, right? Aspirin's number needed to treat for, for true acute coronary syndrome, for people who are truly having an MI, aspirin's number needed to treat is 64. So before you actually have a mortality benefit or any sort of benefit from aspirin, you need to treat approximately 64 people before one person will have benefit from aspirin for acute coronary syndrome, as opposed to mechanical thrombectomy, whereas you need to give 2.5 people the procedure before one person will have benefit. And that's really, really, I can't really emphasize to you how groundbreaking that is for a medical intervention. And just as a reference point, consider how many times in a shift you've given aspirin to a patient, you know, like four chest pain, five chest pains. And that essentially means that there was no clinical difference made in those patients. However, there are shifts where you'll see three stroke patients mm-hmm. and you, you can have the idea that at least you gave a third of those patients a shot to, you know, get out to a, a more positive outcome generally. I really like that way of thinking about it. Ed. That's a very excellent way of approaching that mentality. I, it's, and again, it, we, there's, the thing is with strokes, there's so much nonsense in, in EMS as far as, you know, responses and troubles with management and, and whatever else. And the whole point is to go out there and actually make people better. It's encouraging to see like, hey, here's something that we can actually, we can do this. We can make people better with this simple change. You know, we can, you know, we can talk to leadership and say, hey, we need to change our stroke protocol. We can make our staff more comfortable with bypassing, you know, front level stroke centers, basic stroke centers, and going to comprehensive stroke centers. Because again, we we don't have any problems bypassing community hospitals to go to trauma centers, mm-hmm. right? Because the trauma center, well, they need that hospital because they were having a trauma, right? 
I, I don't know that we apply that same logic to comprehensive stroke centers where, no, they're having a stroke that exceeds the capability of this hospital. So we're taking them to a, a more specialized center. You know, that's, that's that line of take the patient to an appropriate center for their care in all of the testing sheets that we had that, you know, we don't really think about anymore. But the other thing is when, when we were going through this, you know, it, it, it's a shame, I think, in medicine that, you know, money talks and bullshit walks. So aside from the, the number needed to treat, which is incredibly low, and all of these other benefits, you can do a race scale in the back of your ambulance, you can divert to a comprehensive stroke center, they can, you know, you can do all of these things to make a tangible difference in the patient's life. But that doesn't necessarily appeal to the C-suite. But one of the best things about treating strokes better is that there is an actual monetary benefit. So Mike D, I want you to go through that for a little bit, and then we'll have one more round of questions. We'll wrap it up. Yeah, I'm actually pulling up my article I wrote because I have the data here. Um, <laughs> um, so there, Let that be a lesson this... to you all. If you're trying to recruit a medical director, get a guy who publishes. <laughs> um, so, so how it's described in literature when we're talking about that, this sort of thing, it's, it's called uh, quality adjusted life years or QALY. And we, we really don't really gauge it too much in our literature in the, in the EM that often, but as Ed alluded to, it's actually the way you're going to loop in and convince administrators and all the other paper pushers to sort of, you know, agree to these sort of protocols. Um, and just, I, just a real quick note, the, the qualities are just, it's a, a data set that, you know, you had these amount of years after your incident that other people or the data considers like good living. It's a, it's a close to objective score, but it's a number on a sheet that people run through data sets. Yeah, I think the way to think about it is like how many more uh, years of contributing meaningfully to society does this individual have? And how much have we returned that based off our intervention? So, you right. know, for example, someone could have a stroke at 45, right? And, you know, they theoretically could have worked for 20 more years. So how much monetary benefit did we lose to society overall based off their disability. So looking at the data out of the United Kingdom in the US, it's estimated somewhere between 70 to $175 million annually could be added back in just from thrombectomy intervention alone, um, which I think is, is huge. Like that's, that's a wild amount of dollars to throw out there. And that's not necessarily dollars that we would be making in the healthcare industry or anything like that. That's just, you know, right. in society, how much we would benefit from having this person back well, around. And, and like the reason that becomes important is, you know, if you're talking to a CEO or a CFO and they need to rationalize, okay, well, we have to get some kind of give back, right? If we're going from a primary to a comprehensive stroke center, we spend all this money. What, what's what's the net benefit for us aside from helping the patients? And you can always make the argument that it's more money into the community. And you can say by doing this advanced care, we're actually helping the community more than we were previously. You know, that's part I of the, actually just the growth to pattern. I'm sorry. So quality of life years um, or quality adjusted life years also is used. I'm, I'm talking also about the... Um, net monetary benefit. So the net monetary yeah. benefit is something that's tied in with quality of life years. So usually they're presented together. So the actual objective number of years that are added back to society per person for this sort of thing is, is anywhere from uh, 0.75 to two, um, which I know sounds very low, but you're actually talking like functional years added back to someone who had an extremely debilitating stroke, right? You're talking someone who is not able to walk, talk, or move a whole side of their body is now given two more years of independence on average, uh, where they're a functioning member of society. And then their monetary benefit to societies upwards of 175 million for this cohort of patients. So right. I just wanted to correct myself on that area of data. I apologize. Yeah. And, and again, like it, it, we can have an entire episode about, you know, the, the horror of having to, uh, 
consider a human life based upon their monetary value after a medical incident. But you know, there, there is a reality that exists that there are some people that are going to have to be concerned about those numbers. So we've talked a lot about this. I, I think the the general lesson, if you haven't picked up anything from the show, is you know talk to your leadership about diverting to a center that can treat LVOs. Talk to your leaders about going to comprehensive stroke centers. See what your actual stroke protocol is. You want to make sure that you're going to the right place and the patients are getting the right treatments. And make sure that that if you're in a hospital network, make sure that the hospital network has a comprehensive stroke program where you can divert these patients to the proper centers and get their outcomes. So to wrap it up, I want to get a couple anecdotes. I want to hear a couple stories from you guys because Mike and Mike work at a very, 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 very large university hospital system in the city of New York. And they're the patients that they see, um, it, we can't let you all into our private group chat, but if we did, there are many stories. So I'm, I'm interested in, in some of the, the more interesting stroke stories that you guys have had from you know, the, the big city ED, because again, you know, a, a lot of people work in like mid populated areas and it's like, Oh, it's a big city hospital, but you, you just know, called you, a lot of our listeners mid. No, 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 no. I said the population of those areas are mid. Oh, it's mid. Yeah. Okay. Fair, yeah. fair. Go I'm on. saying, I'm saying the yeah. Island of Manhattan has more people on it than most States is what, Very is true. what I'm saying. Yeah. So in, in your experience in, in that particular setting, um, you know, in a, in a, a large tertiary universal hospital setting, um, Give, give uh, me some examples. Quartonary, Edward. Quart oh, sorry, quartonary. A quartonary hospital. The the final stop. That's what. Yeah, you want that? You want your hospital referred to as the final stop, Mike? I like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, give us a couple stories about of of stroke patients that you saw that you were able to turn around using this this research and these ideas. I mean, one I one I can think of off the top of my head, which was like a sentinel case in my mind. Um, so we see a lot of uh, left ventricular assist device or LVAD patients. Um, by virtue of having an LVAD, which is any sort of in invasive device, you already at increased risk of developing emboli or stroke. Um, so this patient was a functional adult who had a heart failure with an LVAD, um, became aphasic with left-sided uh, hemiparesis uh, that was witnessed by his wife. And he came into the ED to see us within about like an hour or so of his onset of symptoms. Um, his head CT was negative, so he came in with EMS. It was a call ahead notification for us. Um, so by the time he arrived already, neurology was down with us as well, which is a big, big thing, uh, truthfully, to get the, the wheels moving on the back end. Like, call ahead is huge uh, to let us know that you're coming in with a potential stroke patient. Um, so he pretty much went right to the scanner. His head CT was negative. He was a candidate for TPA, but, you know, these are high-risk patients you're talking about that already has an implantable device within his heart. Um, so the risk of bleeding is, is really, really high for him. Um, so the discussion then turned around, would he be a candidate for thrombectomy? And, you know, LVAD is actually considered, so there's nothing within the modified Rankin scale to say an LVAD makes you have an elevated Rankin scale. Because there are folks, I mean, look at uh, Dick Cheney. Uh, I'd rather not, but all right. was the vice president with an LVAD, right? So his MRS is functionally zero. Um, but when you're talking about an invasive procedure like thrombectomy, you know, it's not necessarily that your MRS is elevated from having an LVAD, but your risk is certainly elevated uh, by having an LVAD. So there was a lot of conversation between the neurology team, us in the ED team, and then the patient's family. Thankfully, his wife was so medically literate and was able to really converse with us very well about the risks benefits. So he actually ended up going for a thrombectomy after receiving TPA. And I have his chart filed and saved because I use this as a teaching case when I'm teaching junior residents. Um, but he's functional. Back to baseline, no deficit, zero deficits wow. uh, from that stroke. And he's now actually on the heart transplant list. Oh, so cool. okay. when you're talking about like really impactful patient care, 
Um, that's just a perfect example of someone who, you know, I would, I would say even given the wrong neurologist on during the day, I definitely would have had some folks who say, oh, no, he's not a thrombectomy candidate. But we had all the right folks, I think, lined up. And we had a very super hardcore, great EMS uh, team that brought him in. And I, I think, you know, everything lined up right for that patient in that day. I don't have quite a quite as impactful of a story as Mike does, but I think that's because uh, we we're doing it so often, mm-hmm. kind of like like <laughs> no truthfully, I mean, no honestly, like I've lost no, I, count. I it's it's a funny like like uni- like university hospital doctor flex, but like oh I do this. Every day. <laughs> no, it's just, probably, probably several uh, cases a week. Oh, a stroke with an LVAD. Uh, it is but a Monday morning for me. <laughs> I mean, like it's it's the classic story though, is because you know, like especially the M- the MCA syndrome, right? Um, where you have complete hemiparesis, aphasia, um, difficulty like naming things, and even some like receptive problems, right? With like understanding voice, um, someone who right is like. MRS of like five, I think, right? Like mm-hmm. complete, they would need complete care. And then this is like weekly, every few weeks patient, right? They come in, they get no bleed. Sometimes they get TPA, sometimes they're out of the window. Then they go to thrombectomy and they have like function back, right? We follow these people up. Um, so it's, it's like, I don't have like a, a, a specific of a story, but it's, it's, you know, I lost fingers for the number of people we've helped right. with this. And Mike it's can probably like what, attest like to this what too. works works. Yeah, yeah. and Mike yeah. can probably attest to this too. There have been times where I'm picking up a patient and I'm reviewing the chart and I'm like, oh, a year and a half ago I saw them for, you know, their MRS was like four, they were aphasic, and I'm going to see them in urgent care because they're coming in because they stubbed their toe or something like that. And mm-hmm. I'm like, holy crap, like you should have seen yourself a year and a half ago. So you know, yeah. it's truly amazing stuff that happens for these folks. Those long-term follow-ups are, are pretty cool. You know, it's never great seeing someone in a clinical setting again, but it, it is always nice to, you know, <laughs> see, it's, it's nice to see someone that you helped, you know, I, I think the, I guess the one sentence wrap up here is when you go out to your stroke patients, just make sure that you understand what's going on with them. Is it a stroke or is it some other pathology? And on the flip side of that, don't actually rule out a stroke so early. You want to make sure that you get a pretty decent assessment in your patients. And then once you figured out what's going on with the patient, you want to make sure you get them to the right facility. We've talked about modified Rankin scores. We've talked about mechanical thrombectomy at a comprehensive stroke center where the number needed to treat is 2.5. So you can treat three people and one of them will have some kind of positive benefit and be better than they were or that when you saw them. So they'll be better at discharge. So big picture, pay attention to your stroke patients, go to the right hospitals and let us know how that works for you guys. How are you guys running your strokes? How are you taking them to general hospitals? Are you going to, you know, tertiary or quaternary uh, university hospitals in the city to get your strokes fixed. And let us know what you guys think. And for the overrun, I'm Ed Bowder. I'm Mike DiFilippo. I'm Michael Stone. And we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.